In this place, is, we simply seek to honor you in what we say and do. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to your word, open our heart to receive, Lord Jesus, from you, Lord God, and we just pray that you be glorified in this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Oh, if you guys got your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up 2 Kings, chapter 13. And uh, we're going to continue to talk about revival. To talk about revival and, and what that needs to look like in our life. Oh, we talk about it often as a church, and sometimes we... We make revival synonymous with church growth. And that's not really what revival is. Revival is what Jesus uh, promised through the scriptures when he said that Elijah, at the end of uh, the book of Malachi, he said Elijah would come and turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. That he would open up the eyes of people to what really matters in life. I don't know if it ever happens to you, but occasionally I lose sight of the things that really matter and I focus on the things that don't really matter. Well, the things that do matter are the relationships that we have with one another in the body of Christ and my relationship with Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Those are the things that are lasting. Those are eternal. The relationships that I have outside of that are good and great, but they're not eternal. The relationships that I have with people who don't know the Lord Jesus as their Lord and Savior, it's a a wholly different relationship than I have with a brother or a sister. Not that, that somehow they're not worthy of that, but there's not that unity like a family. You know, your brothers are your brothers. Your sister's your sister. You can't, they're family. They're family. It doesn't mean it's necessarily better. But family should be forever. And the family of God certainly is. And Jesus, as he ministers through the scriptures, he tells us, and we'll talk a little bit about it Sunday when we, when we talk about uh, the resurrection day. But Jesus would teach that the scriptures speak of him. The very first scripture that talks about Jesus is Genesis 3.15. Mankind hadn't been on earth very long. And God was already talking to him about the Redeemer. He's in Genesis chapter 3. He's in Genesis chapter 14. He's in Genesis chapter 15. He's in Genesis chapter 22. And pretty much everywhere else you go the rest of the way through. And that's just Genesis. The Bible says that Jesus was crucified from the foundation of the world his desire from the moment mankind he, they knew this moment god knew that he would create mankind before he ever said let there be light jesus had already made the decision to wear flesh and die for the sin of man but god is not dumb he knew 
He created man with a choice. And if you give a child the choice, it means they have the, the opportunity to be victorious, right? And they have the opportunity to see defeat. They have the opportunity to do right, and they have the opportunity to do wrong. If you truly give that choice, you have to sit back and wait to see what they do. That's what God did. He waited. He knew. In order to make man able to love, he had to give man the choice not to. We didn't get very far, did we? Hadn't been a child born yet before Adam and Eve chose that they wanted to know themselves what was right or wrong and they didn't want to have to go to God. Do you guys get that that's that picture? In Genesis, the fall of man, the tree is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? You know that mankind's been trying to figure that out ever since? You figured you got it all nailed down? What's good and what's evil? If you think you do, just see me afterwards. I'll give you a Chinese proverb to prove you don't have any idea. <laughs> we don't have that ability. The, God created us so that we would have a relationship with Him and we would come to Him and He would show us good from evil. And He would guide us. But on that day, on the fall, Adaham, Adaham, Adaham? isn't his name Adam? Adaham. I don't know where that came from. I'm hungry, maybe I want a ham, I don't know. It's probably wrong to speak of ham in the Bible at the same time. Anyways, the idea is Adam declared his independence at the fall of man. I will decide for me. Then they had a couple of sons, right? You guys remember their son's name? Cain and Abel, how long did they go before trouble? All I know is the Bible says that they were bringing their offerings before the Lord, which probably was at the opening of the Garden of Eden. And the Bible says the Garden of Eden, there was a gate shut, so man couldn't go in the Garden of Eden anymore. And God set two cherubim there, one on either side with a drawn sword to tell man, you can no longer come into the garden. You had to come outside. But God said, I will meet you, do you remember where? Between the cherubim. On the Ark of the Covenant, you remember how many cherubim were built into the Ark of the Covenant? Two, one on each side facing each other, right? And what did God say? I'll meet you where? Between the cherubim. But most commentators believe that Cain and Abel are bringing their offerings to God who's meeting there, still having a relationship with God. You see, when God cast them out of the garden, he didn't just say, see you guys, and uh, you know, in a couple thousand years, I'll send Jesus. So until then, you're on your own. And he was right there at the garden. He was teaching them how to, to understand the sacrifice. Where did, where did Adam and Eve get their first clothes? From God. What did he do? He made them skins. Is there a way to get a skin without killing an animal? Well, if there is, God could do it. But I don't think he did. I think the very first thing that happened there in the book of Genesis, the fall of man, was a lamb was slain. And that's the same picture all the way through right slay the lamb slay the lamb what the lamb ever do nothing was a lamb guilty no that's the point right when jesus came and john the baptist pointed at him what did he call him the lamb of god that takes away the sin of the world what's that mean he's innocent he's not guilty and he'll pay for your sins all the way back in genesis that's in the word 
God wanted a relationship. Cain and Abel would come to him. Abel did well. Cain didn't. We can all talk about why or why not. It really doesn't make any difference. The point is, one's offering was accepted, the other wasn't. And God said to Cain, Cain, I want a relationship with you. But I know what's in your heart. He said, sin is at the very door of your heart. You should rule over it. And Cain walked away, was angry at his brother, picked up a rock, and killed him. God didn't slay him. God didn't pitch him out the back. God still reached out to Cain. God still reached out generation after generation after generation. You read the book. There was not a time where man was without a prophet. And if man was without a prophet, he had this. So he had what he needed to understand the things that God required. We find ourselves in 2 Kings chapter 13, dark history of Israel. Israel's divided down the middle. The northern kingdom doesn't want a relationship with God. You guys remember we, we studied about Elijah, right? Elijah the prophet taken up in the chariot of fire up into heaven. Who did God send him to? The northern kingdom. What about Elisha? Yeah, he, he had a double portion of what Elijah had, incredible power. In fact, we're going to read tonight. They buried Elisha after he dies. And <clears throat> another guy dies, and as they're going to go bury him, they, they see this... Uh, group of people attacking somebody so they they lay the body down in the cave where elijah's bones are that's what i meant it touches elisha's bones and the guy gets up man it's wild that's wild the point being that that god had power in these men and they were the voice for god to a, a group of people who didn't want to have anything to do with him do you think that's changed at all do you think there's somewhere around the, the earth where man doesn't want to have anything to do with God that God doesn't have a, a voice? Hey, I firmly believe there's a group of guys in Evan Prison that didn't want to have nothing to do with God. So God brought Saeed. There, he's talking to guys in Evan Prison nobody else would be able to get to. God always puts his voice where people need it the most. And that's what he's doing in the northern kingdom and in the southern kingdom. They're struggling. They're, where one time God was central in their lives, now he's just that thing, you know, they do every once in a while. And sometimes we can get like that with our relationship with God. It's, it's that thing we do sometimes. You know, we, we add God into our busy lives. Our lives are pretty busy. We got lots of stuff going on. We got lots of dreams and desires and things that I want. And so we try to sprinkle a little God in. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You're either in or you're out. You got to be one or the other. So the Lord sends his prophets and he brings about kings and the kings try to bring about revival. We saw last week, they try to bring revival, but they don't take care of the high places. They don't deal with all the nooks and crannies, right? I'm going to come to the Lord 
and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call upon the name of the Lord, and I want God's blessing, but I don't want to live for the Lord. I don't want to match my life to Him. Folks, listen to what Jesus said when He called the disciples. He didn't say, hey, come and learn about me. He didn't say, come and, and, and listen to all the stuff I say. He said, come and follow me. You walk where I walk. You do what I do. And those disciples, what did they do? They, they laid their nets down and they followed him, right? I mean, that's commitment. They left behind the old them. And they stepped forward into a new creation. Things were never the same. And that's the same thing God's always been wanting of his people. Be committed. To care more about how your life looks to the Lord than how your life looks to yourself. That was the problem with the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom because, you know, they still had to do all their stuff. They wouldn't lay down their life and follow the Lord. And when they had a bad king, oh, then they would call upon the name of the Lord, right? Nothing make you call the name of the Lord like a lousy president. I mean, king. I'm, ki- I'm kidding. <clears throat> Only partly, but I am kidding. But the, you know what I'm saying? When, when life gets hard, when the economy goes down, you know what happens? Church attendance goes up. <laughs> and, when the, and when the economy goes up, church attendance goes down. It's all right. That's just how it is, man. It's how it is. The, the point is, the Lord understands what needs to go on in our lives to bring us to the place where we'll call on His name. And He loves us enough to allow those things. And that's what we see Him doing in, in chapter 13 of Second Kings. He's trying to draw the people to Himself. When Jesus looked over Jerusalem, we talked about it Sunday when He came into the city. You remember He wept, right? Do you know why He wept? Because those kids that were running in the street. We're all going to die. Because their moms and their dads were going to starve to death in a few years. At the time, Jesus crucified some estimates around 32 AD. So roughly 35 years later. Whole generation obliterated. Jesus sees that day coming. And he knows what would make for their peace. They would not. It didn't fit in their life. There was no room at the end, right? Chapter 13, it says, In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah. Now listen, as we study this, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, and 1st and 2nd Samuel will make you crazy. Because you've got a northern and a southern kingdom, and they keep naming their kids the same. You ever notice that? Like there's a thing going through schools and everybody's name's John and then everybody's name's Tom and everybody's name's Tony or whatever the thing is. All I know, when I was in school, there was no other guys named Jackie, so I didn't have that problem. But I know a lot of other guys who did. It's the same thing here. These kings keep naming. You're going to see a couple of kings with the same names. 
So try not to lose sight. This Joash, we've been talking about him, was the king of Judah. Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel. So that's north. Jehoahaz, north. Joash, south. And he reigned for 17 years. Now he did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. Remember, the sins of Jeroboam, that's mixed, mixing all other religions in with Judaism. They had God and they added everything else in. Baal, all kinds of other stuff. They just mixed it all together. Or they just took it all and took, the, took what was true and took what was false and made a, a stew. And that's the religion that they followed. That's the sin of Jeroboam. That's what he did. So the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. And he delivered them into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, all their days. So God used Syria to judge Israel. So they would, remember I told you, God always knows what he needs to do to get you to look to him. And more important than your comfort or a change in your circumstance or a a healing from your disease is that God gets you to look to him. That God has you develop a relationship with him. Because no matter what happens to you here on the earth, the most important thing is where are you going to spend eternity? Are you going to spend eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ because you've committed yourself, submitted yourself to him, he's your Lord and Savior? Because trust me, suffering on earth and living in eternity with Christ is way better than having everything you want on earth and spending eternity in hell. It's way better. So the Lord brings Syria to to encourage Israel to call upon the Lord for deliverance so that they could have a relationship, so that they would know the truth. Look what happens. So in verse 4, so Jehoahaz pleaded with the Lord. It worked. Listen, men call on God when life is hard. In the furnace of affliction, God perfects us. You look at your life and think about the hard things you've been through in your life. When did you pray the most? When you call on the name of the Lord the most? When are you reaching out to Him the most? When you're going through hard times. Now, it's not God's judgment. Please don't see that. God's not going, see, you've been bad, so I'm going to hit you with these guys over here to punish you. That's not it. The punishment of God is poured out on His Son. The wrath of God does not fall on the souls of man until man either makes an eternal choice and goes to hell, or for the last few guys who are still around at the end of time, when the wrath of God is poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. That's the only two ways you get the wrath of God. The wrath of God was poured out on Christ on the cross. When Jesus looked up to heaven and he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A a relationship you and I can't even understand that was so close, they'd never known separation, knew separation that moment as Jesus Christ became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. So there's no wrath. There's wrath stored up. But there's no wrath yet. There is a loving God trying to turn his children toward him. 
Now, if you've ever been a parent, you understand how that works. Have you ever had a child go in the wrong direction? Some of you, your kids are still young, maybe, and I hope you never experienced it, but I've been, I've sat with many a parent whose, whose children are 16, 17, 18 years old, making choices in a radically wrong direction. And they're, they're beside themselves, trying to figure out, how do I reach my child? How do I get back into the life of my son? He's going the wrong way. And ultimately, what those parents have to end up doing is letting go. That's a hard thing to do, by the way. To turn your child over to the kind of things you know they're headed toward. But when we do that, we let them go, and prayerfully we let them know, my door is always open, and you can always come home again. And they go out and they fall on a little grief. They get a taste of the wages of sin. And they come back. But if you hold on to them and coddle them and protect them, they'll never stop rebelling against you. Because they never tasted the wages of sin. So God takes his hands off his people and he says, you have to taste the fruit. You go out. I used to have my son mow the lawn. My son was about probably eight or nine the first time I let him mow the lawn. Because when they're eight or nine, lawn mowing looks fun. When they're 16, that doesn't look fun anymore. You got you to gotta put you know, a $10 bill on the table to get him to go mow the lawn. But when they're eight, it's like, well, Dad, can I push that thing? You know, and start it up. And, and uh, you know, I always like to try to get a little more out of that lawnmower. So I tweak. I cannot not mess with something. So I tweak the carburetor a little bit and, and uh, do, do a little adjusting. So that sucker sounds like it's going to fly. And, and JC's like, oh, let me mow the lawn. Let me mow the lawn. And he get out there and he'd start going. Now, I would tell him, just follow the lines of the tires and the grass, and, and you won't have gaps. But somehow, you know, that'd fly over his head. So he'd just be mowing, and he's having a ball. But there's big old tall pieces of grass between the pieces he cut. You know, each time he'd take a, another swath of it, there'd be a, a little bit of grass stand up. And he'd finish, and he'd just so happy. And I'd say, good job, son. And he'd go in the house, and I'd start the mower and finish it. You know, God does the same thing with us. We think we got it all together and we're doing it all so right, but we're leaving big patches. And God lets us leave our patches and he finds a way to come back in and clean it up. Because he loves us. He loved the northern kingdom, so he sent the Syrians. And it worked. Because that king who was an evil king... He's calling on the name of Yahweh. God, help me. God, help me. They're coming. Look what it says in verse 5. So, the Lord gave Israel a deliverer. Oh, I know my deliverer is coming. 
all throughout the scripture, the Bible talks about the deliverer. Who do you think they're talking about every time? I don't care who the actual person was, and he's not even going to get named here. Every deliverer in the Bible is pointing to Jesus Christ. Every deliverer in the Bible is saying, here's the one who's going to get you through, who's going to clean up the pieces of grass you didn't get, who's going to get you back on track, who's going to woo you back into the family. Here's the deliverer. Even the northern kingdom, who has not yet one time turned, yet God continues to reach out. It shows his patience, his long-suffering His gentleness. Trust me, we want to walk in those things way more than you want to walk in the justice of God. So the Lord sent a deliverer so that they escaped from under the hands of the Syrians and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam who made Israel sin but walked in them and the wooden image also remained in Samaria. So even though God delivered them, God sent this trouble. They called on the name of the Lord. The Lord delivered them, and they went right back to the same old stuff. They went right back to wallowing in the same sin. They went right back to the very thing that offended God. Sometimes it helps me to see my sin that way. Sometimes we, we, we're able to paint our sin to look at, make it look pretty. You ever painted your sin to make it look pretty? The church is really good at it. Really good. The church is really good at painting some sin real ugly and other sin okay. And the church will get behind all these ugly sins. And they're ugly sins. And they'll pick it and they'll fight and they'll kick and they'll clamor. Because it keeps them from having to consider their own sin. The church bangs the gong of the sin of homosexuality. Bong. Oh, it's evil abomination. Bong. What an abomination. These people are an abomination. Do you know that the Bible says a liar is an abomination to God? A liar. Anybody in here who hasn't told a lie? Please don't raise your hand. Because then you will be part of the crew. The Bible says a liar is an abomination to God. The Bible says a person full of pride is an abomination to God. You want to throw around the name abomination. Better realize when you're doing it, there's plenty of it coming back. Let me make it simple for you. We, mankind are an abomination to God. We have, as mankind, offended Him. And He, in His grace and mercy, is ages of sin.